Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome to Talking Tudors episode 170 and the third installment of all things 16th century women. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. Over August and September, we'll be exploring the lives of 16th century women through a series of podcast episodes and video lectures, which will be published on my YouTube channel, so be sure to subscribe. While all the content is free, I ask that you consider supporting the event by becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you will have access to patron-only monthly giveaways. August's prize is a copy of Dr Estelle Peronk's brilliant new book, Blood, Fire and Gold, the story of Elizabeth I and Catherine de' Medici. Thank you to Dr. Peronk for sponsoring this wonderful prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. On the weekend of the 20th and the 21st of August, I'll be chatting to Adrian Dillard about Jane Seymour and Marjorie Horseman. Details will be published on Patreon. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I would love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag #ILoveTalkingTudors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to chat about women of the middling sort is Professor Catherine Richardson. Catherine Richardson is Professor of Early Modern Studies and Director of the Institute of Cultural and Creative Industries at the University of Kent. Her research is focused on early modern material culture and the history of the creative industries. Her latest books are A Day at Home in Early Modern England, The Materiality of Domestic Life, 1500 to 1700 with Tara Hamling, and she's currently running an AHRC project on the cultural lives of the middling sort. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales.
Welcome to Talking Tutors, Catherine. How are you? Thank you. Yeah, fine. Fabulous. And and I should say welcome to all things 16th century women because this is a special that I'm running at the moment. So it's lovely to have you here. So let's begin with just an introduction. Maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, I'm Professor of Early Modern Studies at the University of Kent uh, and also Director of the Institute of Cultural and Creative Industries there. And actually, those two things seem to come together a bit in this project. Uh, and I'm PI on the Middling Culture Project, so a Principal Investigator on a project looking at the middling thought in early modern England. been at the University of Kent for a long time. And before that, I was at the University of Birmingham at the Shakespeare Institute. So lots of that's relevant to this as well, that focus on the relationship between what, what was happening on and off stage in women's lives. Brilliant. Thank you. And so you mentioned there the Middling Culture Project. So can you tell us just a little bit more about this and maybe about its aims as well? Yeah, sure. So I, I think this comes out of um, lots of conversations that I started having when I was at Birmingham, um, both inside uh, with uh, students and with staff in universities, but also just walking around Stratford-on-Avon, where I was based, talking to people about the lives of, of the most uh, famous writers in early modern England uh, and people saying oh well you know do you really believe that Shakespeare wrote wrote these plays because you know he comes from a provincial town um, there was perhaps no culture there you know only London had culture and uh, and and just I think it raised those really interesting questions about who has access to culture what culture is in this period is it for women or is it only for men and though all those questions so we wanted to just look at that in detail I'm really aware that we know a lot about some of these people we know a lot about those male writers we know much much less about people who were in the same social group but weren't haven't remained prominent for the for the things that they produced so the middling thought is a, a, a term that looks at workers, professional manual workers, but from independent trading households. So it's people who work pretty much for themselves in, in shorthand and a range of influential professional people, such as the writers, such as the clerics, who are often also writers, physicians, tradesmen, lawyers, but also a really big group of urban administrators, so mayors, common councillors, aldermen, all those people that made towns run. So that's who the, who the middling sort are, and we only know about a tiny percentage of them. And we wanted to know what these people were doing. We wanted to know what they were producing, what they were consuming, and uh, what they, you know, what both what they were buying you know, their stuff, but also what they were consuming in terms of, uh, of leisure, of the kind of cultural products like going to the theatre, um, watching plays, etc. We wanted to know whether that was the same across the country. So were people doing the same in the south as the north and the west and the east? And, uh, and we, yeah, specifically wanted to know about provincial towns. So we know quite a bit about London, but London is still now really different to the rest of the country certainly was then so you know what what's actually happening in these provincial towns was it a deathly kind of place where nothing was going on and then we wanted to know where all these things they were producing and consuming came from and went to uh, is this an international network of international connections or is it really local and we wanted to know where culture was happening is it in houses streets pubs churches <laughs> 
obviously it's in all of them, but how are those related to each other? And what does that tell us about these incredible people who went on later to sort of develop into the middle classes? Um, but at this point, you know, there was a really interesting relationship between them. They didn't think of themselves as a group. I think they were often in competition with one another. And then we wanted to know about social mobility and creativity. So how does being creative, how does having cultural and creative outputs help your social mobility? And what does that tell us about now and the kind of cultural competencies that we are inviting our young people at schools and at universities to develop? And why does it matter? So lots of questions we had, uh, and a lot of that was about writing and reading and about uh, this period when I think the creative industries, as we think of them nowadays, all that wonderful creative output was starting to be something that people recognise as commercial for the first time. Uh, and it's it's informed by migration from across Europe and beyond. So we wanted to think about who writes, who doesn't, who reads, who doesn't, why, and how that relates to other kinds of cultural practice, and also where, as I said before, uh, and how that helps people to form their identities. So that's a long answer. <laughs> no, that's a fantastic answer. It sounds like such a fascinating project I spend a lot of time looking at the nobility and royalty of, of the 16th century so you know sometimes it feels like other people are just you know they don't even exist in the story it's just like the subject so it's so lovely to see that you're delving deeper into their lives and I, I find it absolutely fascinating so if we're talking about women of this middling sort who are these women what what do they do and what are their their lives like yeah, so I think what we were very keen to do was to study households and not individuals, because the moment you start to study individuals, you're back to Shakespeare, Marlowe, the mayor, whoever it might be, and then there are no women. So, so we're looking at households and we're looking at these whole ranges of, of cultural practice, and they're big, multifunctional households. You've got a, a concept of kind of household work where households work together in different ways and women are involved there in obviously their labor is incredibly valuable they're doing by employments then they're making producing things to help the household uh, but they're also really heavily involved in their their family businesses they're really highly skilled in a lot of different areas they're comparatively well off and I think they're really aware of that. So they're kind of setting an example of, of being a cut above. They are middling, they're not beneath that. And then as widows, uh, they often go on to, to head those households themselves and to carry on businesses to a certain extent. So they're really savvy people and really uh, important players in urban environments. Uh, and I think they're involved, we've got lots of different types of culture that we're, that we're focusing on. They're involved in, in performance cultures um, as people support supporting that but also as audience obviously they're involved in literate cultures they're involved in dining and feasting that kind of civic culture where those people who are um, in in charge of towns celebrate their authority and they're really in, involved in those cultures of display around cloth and clothing and less so in some of the building cultures perhaps but uh, domestically they're involved in that. And in terms of, of women and engaging with reading and writing, I know this is a very difficult question to answer, but what can you tell us about women and, and literacy at this point? Yeah, it is a difficult question to <laughs> answer. There's no doubt about that. But I think one of the things that we're, we're doing with the middling sort, because basically if you take away the elite, your area, um, and then you take away the poor, everything that's left in some senses is the middling. Well, that's most of society. So we, we've tried to break it down into different groups. And I think in those different groups so we've got uh, elite middling and then who, people who are really gentry but only first generation gentry then upper middling professional middling solid and accumulative middling people who want to move up 
precarious middling people who would love to but they might just slide down again and that's the kind of household some people in that household might consider themselves middling um, dependent middling which are, are people who are living with someone else but you know at a different stage in the life cycle life cycle is really vital here and then those below the middling so for those different groups uh, women in those different groups it's really different story I think and at the elite middling we might expect them to be competent, confident in some cases, readers and writers, and lower down in those groups. It's incredibly patchy. So the evidence is patchy, but also I expect the practice is patchy. Um, so the, at the top of that group, we've got people who are reading religious texts, in some cases authoring them, uh, reading other kinds of texts, keeping commonplace books, listening to texts being read, I think goes across, across the board. Uh, knowing them off by heart, obviously, is really vital in this period, uh, and hearing them in those domestic and ecclesiastical contexts. And then lower down, we've got a kind of awareness of textual culture and narrative culture. So one of the things that we've discovered about these houses is that they're very highly decorated with narrative schemes. So we've got lots of, of writing, writing, actually textual writing around the walls in, in painting, in cloth, and also in carving and in plaster work. But we've also got stories told visually and those are often obviously biblical stories or classical stories so that kind of awareness of story which are also being embroidered into domestic items by women so they know these stories and they might know them textually they might know them visually but they're really aware of a shared culture um, that is at its heart textual but that's not always how they experience it which is really fascinating I think and you know we've, we've got people who are buying tablewares so jugs with text around them now they recognize that text they know what it says they use it and in the use it, it takes on its life that doesn't mean they necessarily think of themselves as readers so it's it's that really porous much more complicated sense of what it means to be literate uh, than the one we're familiar with. Yeah, that is fascinating. I have seen some of those lovely like plates or trenches that have sayings on them. They're, they're beautiful, absolutely beautiful. So can you tell us a little bit more about some of the other cultural forms that, that women were engaging with at this time? Yeah, so we're looking a bit at domestic music making. I think that's very important. We're looking at women who are part of that part of that practice of, of creating domestic harmony so that you know the it's really important that these households are seen as harmonious are seen as productive uh, and are seen as as cultured and women it seems had an important role to play in domestic music making uh, and as other scholars have shown you know they're, they're often playing harmonious sounding instruments and so I think again at the upper levels in the middling that's that's a really important way in which they can be actually performing as opposed to being part of an audience um, although again I think those lines are much more blurred than we often think they're obviously involved in attending the traveling entertainment of, of multiple kinds as, as the Reed project records of early English drama has shown that that are coming to these provincial towns and they're getting a wonderful range of entertainment of which plays are a, a small percentage so they're involved in that and then I think uh, you know another Another key part is this civic culture. As the wives of uh, civic officials, they have a really important role to play in feasting at key moments um, and in, in reflecting their family's authority in the town. And I think they would have seen that as very important. Cultures of the parish church, obviously there again, where you've got um, uh, seating that is in social status order, 
as usual, we find out about women's lives often when it all goes very wrong. And there are arguments about that, those status definitions. But that's that's really important, I think, to be seen as, as part of that worship, that culture of worship um, and how that relates, intersects with their social standing. Uh, and as arms givers, as carers for the poor, as producers of clothing for the poor uh, and, and other kinds of provisions. So always with the middling, I think we, we see events such as the provision for, for the poor. And we've got the husbands who are involved in administering the poor rate, going around, uh, getting money off uh, fellow parishioners. But then we've got women who are making garments alongside men who are making garments. So at different levels in the middling, we've got people involved in the same process. And some of them are men, some of them are women. Uh, and I think historiographically, we've tended to only look at the male roles because they're the ones that are writing out the documents, but we can see these women in those places. So I think they're involved in one way or another, more or less actively, more or less as producers or consumers in most of the cultural forms that we're looking at. But it's within the household and the church, perhaps, that they're most visible. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And I was just thinking about the entertainments that you, that you mentioned coming to, to town. So were they consumers of those entertainments or were they actually involved in preparations and, and the actual entertainment itself? I think mainly as consumers, although some of these, the work of um, one of other wonderful members on the project, Callan Davis, has shown that, that some of the places where players are playing, for instance, are commercial establishments where women's role in running them um, is really, really important. So, you know, it's, it's this peripheral work. And I think scholarship recently has moved to understand that if you want to put on a show, that's many, many more people involved in just who's standing on the stage. And we know that from our experience of putting on shows nowadays. Uh, and it's crazy, really, that we've looked at writers and actors in, in a kind of vacuum. And, and lots of scholarship has been looking at where women show up when you, when you look more broadly at that commercial entertainment world. But I think that because they are so embedded in the civic cultures of the places where they live uh, and, and the commercial cultures, they've got important roles to play um, and uh, and we see that coming through in lots of different kinds of documents. That's wonderful and you were talking about the actual houses themselves mm -hmm. that, that people are living in so can you tell us a little bit more about these houses maybe what some of them looked like and what kind of furniture and other things did they have in there and why do you think it's so important to study those domestic spaces? where to start <laughs> so I, I think these spaces are crucial they're crucial for the middling sort generally and they're crucial if we want to understand women's lived experience so if you've got the middling sort you know as I said these are working households so these are people who are both working and living in their houses for a start so a lot's happening in these middling houses they're often in the center of towns so we've looked at various different towns most recently just been looking at Chester which has got these wonderful row houses where you've got the, the different levels of commercial activity going on and and uh, and domestic activity and what we've seen is it, across the board this mixture you can't say this is domestic this is commercial so everything's going on together and we've got rooms that are multi-use so unlike the elite where you've got a room to do x and a room to do y you've usually got several different things as is the case behind me going on at the same time sometimes at different type, times of the day so they're really crucial in that sense that you might be storing the stock for your shop 
in the room where you're sleeping or in the room where you're doing other things. Uh, and, and it's really hard to see any kind of, uh, of barriers, really. But they're also crucial because they're increasingly becoming leisure spaces. So we're seeing uh, a room which is often called, though sometimes called something else, and it changes across the period, but a room called a parlour, uh, which is really highly decorated. And women are really involved in that decoration, that process of decoration, producing the textiles, which is such an important part of it. And I think curating some of these spaces, if you want to put it that way. Uh, and then uh, those spaces, again, you're inviting your peers in. So we've got this developing early modern notion of domestic hospitality in urban spaces, which is about a bit more about than it used to be about only people of your own social group being invited around uh, and you're offering them hospitality. You might be playing at cards with them. You might be playing at dice, whatever it might be. You might be reading together, either scriptural or otherwise. And, and you're, you're having an entertainment experience and, and the music is, is a part of that. So you've got those spaces where, you know, you could say that's for leisure, but it's also clearly for business as well, because that's how these people are building up their reputation in the town. And across this period, but sorry, I mentioned the period. So we're working from sort of the middle to late 16th century to the middle of the 17th century. So a lot of the work that's been done on middling groups is much later. We wanted to know where that came from. So across that period, you've got many, many more objects coming into these houses. People are buying things in much larger numbers, particularly this group. They're producing the things and they're purchasing the things. So, you know, they're a real kind of engine of the economy and they're buying things in multiple sets. They're buying clever kitchen gadgets, you know, rather than having two or three pans, they're now, everything has many more types of thing you can buy. It's a process that's really familiar to us nowadays. <laughs> and they're going, they're really going for this in a big way. And it's women's role to look after those things and to make sure that you've got the right things to make your household work. And that's not only a practical matter, that's also a kind of aesthetic matter. It needs to look right. You need to be signaling your cultural competence. So, you know, it's a really, these spaces are where these women are spending most of their lives, obviously. They're, they're organizing them. They're taking a lead there in a way that perhaps they're not in, in the more civic contexts. And it's happening at a period where these spaces are becoming ever more complicated, ever more stuffed with things that need looking after. And they're defining, I think, they're using them to define the family status. So that's really vital. And one of the really exciting things that we're doing in the Middling Culture Project is we're putting together a virtual room and it's just uh, it's going to launch in September but it's wonderful because we can start to see the configuration of these things together all the things that these women were involved with producing consuming and you know if you go into a museum um, you often don't get a sense of what houses were like and, and even in the the extant houses we've got which for at this level in the social, social scale are not that many many of these objects are missing so there's not very many textiles left and and you don't and you don't get a sense of the relationship between tiny things like seals for documents um, like books and the bigger pieces of furniture so we wanted to to put together a virtual room so you could experience that sense of what it felt like to use these spaces and you could actually enter into them and get a sense of how different middling people would have used them so we've got some uh, avatars you can be the woman of the house you can be uh, the householder you can be an apprentice etc and just get that experience 
experience of how these spaces worked and how they felt for women uh, and how they may have responded to some of these objects, because there is actually a surprising amount of evidence for women's attitudes towards these things, as well as what those things were. So that's really exciting and, and it's not finished yet, but what I've seen of it looks absolutely amazing. Uh, and it's just a different way of us getting to grips with how houses were important to women really in this period. Yes, I did read about the uh, virtual room. I thought that sounded absolutely amazing. I cannot wait to check that out when it's up and running. And is there going to be, is, is there going to be a, an actual physical room as well that you can visit somewhere? So it's based on a room at the Wealdon Downland Museum, which is a fantastic museum um, of vernacular housing. And I, I don't know whether people know this, um, it sh should definitely be better known. It's just outside Chichester in the most beautiful setting. And what they've done is where vernacular buildings were going to be knocked down, where people are building roundabouts or shopping centres or whatever it might be, they have disassembled them and then reassembled them in this huge open air setting. And they've got a sort of a part of a uh, well, it's like a sort of urban centre, if you like, uh, at one part, part of the site. And then there's also the rural buildings as well. And uh, and one of the houses is a, a house from Reigate. And it had this new extension built in the 17th century, really sort of swanky new build uh, on the back of the property, uh, which was which is quite a common uh, pattern. So again, it's right in the centre, was right in the centre of the town. But at the moment, the way in which uh, it works in the museum, it's not possible for visitors visitors to see this space. Uh, there are access issues. Uh, it's very complicated. So it's based on that. It has some amazing wall paintings. And so it's a way of being able to visit that space without visiting it. But uh, there will be a way of visiting it on the site as well. So really, yeah, encouraging people to go and, and experience it in lots of different ways. And actually, you know, I, I think that the Wheeled and Downland Museum is, is one of the very best places to get that sense of what it felt like to be living in these spaces and to be going about the, uh, the business of uh, all the things that women did. Uh, in these houses during the day, because you can just sit in these rooms, you can sit in the buildings and just uh, get a sense of time passing there in a way that often with historic properties, you're being sort of pushed to yes. go into the next room. Uh, and there's, you know, it's really, uh, it's possible to, to get a, a much clearer sense, I think, of, uh, of the changing pattern of the day there. So you can do that both virtually and physically. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. I have never visited actually, and I need, I, I need to add that to my list and go. It I sounds do. incredible. Um, so in terms of skills that women had at this in this period, so what would they have seen as the essential skills that every woman needed? Yeah, so I think many of those are domestic. Certainly, they they relate to this kind of proliferation of different types of goods that we were talking about, and you know, and reflect a kind of growing sense of the complexity of what it means to run a household. So cooking skills and and sort of if you like, fancy cooking skills, things that are way beyond my capabilities. Mm -hmm. And they're not always doing them on their own. So again, you know, uh, very big multifunctional households with servants characterize these groups. So they might be organizing the work of servants. They're also determining what's done. So the production of, uh, you know, daily food, but also of preserving food, really crucial through winter months uh, in different ways, which are now available and doing so from often 
urban gardens, being able to have access to things to preserve really, and then knowing what to do with them because if you get it wrong, you have no food in the winter or you have a much, much narrower range of food. So that's really vital. Household preparation and embellishment has, as we've said a bit about, and I think, you know, being able to uh, embroider, being able to sew basic undergarments, linens, bed linens. These are the types of things that are proliferating massively. So uh, napkin ownership in early modern Chester. I won't give you the statistics, but it's staggering. And actually, you know what, we've we've started now to, to take the, the probate inventories of what people owned when they died and to try to map them onto these different middling groups. And, and the, the upper middling, it's all about entertainment, mm -hmm. entertainment goods for, for hospitable dining and large numbers of napkins in different sets women are responsible often for producing those uh, as well as guarding them uh, and you know they these might have lace borders you know these are very expensive items and they need to see them in sets they need to understand what would be appropriate for particular kinds of dining what colors what what kinds of embellishments so there's all of that kind of work that I think again you know we've not looked at as historians because it's women's stuff it's sewing it's not the big politics of of the world but actually it makes a crucial difference to these whole communities uh, and it, it's the material culture that facilitates the political culture of urban experience so really important roles there um, but also business acumen I mean they need to know how to buy and sell uh, they need to be able to take Take payment when their husbands are out. They need to be managing customer relations uh, and just smoothing out arguments, but also facilitating purchases. And there's lots of examples of this of women who's, you know, obviously their husband is, is the tradesperson, but he's not there for most of the day. So they're welcoming customers. They have to know when to say do come back later or, or, or when not. And they have to understand accounting. Um, and, it's, you know, again, there's a big range there, but some women are obviously, uh, you know, running the accounts. So that's that's vital. Building those networks of credit. So the, the thing we know about these relatively small provincial towns is that everybody knows everybody else and that your credit, your moral and personal credit, as Craig Muldrow's work's shown, is, is the way you get on. So they need to be building that and not diminishing it. And they do that in this. I mean, you know, I think the, the kind of political with a small p there way in which these women must have been operating is absolutely fascinating so all the way from dressing appropriately and addressing people appropriately all the way up to being able to run uh, the, the account books for the business um, is is a part of the, the same thing really it's a set of skills about being able to make your family profitable uh, and to rise up that scale rather than dropping down it and so it's a kind of you know these are these are life skills in a fundamental sense because they're what makes the difference in a really cut cutthroat period particularly around some things like the 1590s where economically it was a very difficult period you had to rise as a family because if you didn't the consequences were desperate really so those kinds of skills the soft skills as well as as well as the very technical skills uh, music we've talked a bit about so a kind of aesthetic set of skills the higher up that group you go um, but also those skills of being able to tell when cloth is good when cloth is high quality and when it isn't. And then religious skills, you know, religious knowledge, which we tend not to think of as, of as skill set, but being a good Christian, being skilled at prayer, at leading family prayer sometimes, and at uh, looking after the spiritual welfare and, and 
and the physical welfare of all those in your family. So you might have basic medical knowledge, but you also need basic spiritual knowledge and you need to have the confidence to apply both of those uh, because you're looking after uh, your children, but you're also looking after your servants and apprentices and, and others that are coming into your house seasonally. So you've got actually a, a big group to look after and it's your job to care for them in every way and to be a, a caregiver spiritually and physically. So that's that's a vast array of skills, some of which are textually based, some of which are technical, and others of which are very much part and parcel of what women have always done, I suppose. But I think there's quite a self-consciousness about it. So there's a lot of manuals in this period, uh, which people who've looked at almost any subject in the period will recognise the equivalent of a massive sort of self-help group of publications. But these these huge domestic manuals that tell you how to how to run a household and a family because it's not thought to be obvious. So I think perhaps this was a period where some of these skills were much more formally thought about and, and formally taught and passed on than they were in, in intervening periods. And there wasn't yet that firm distinction between women's work, which is not important, and men's work, which is financially the only important thing. I think there's a much more holistic sense of how it all fits together and therefore how you need to learn those skills. It's a really complicated skill set. Wow, I am in absolute awe of those women. I don't know how well I would have done needing to know all of that. That is that is a big job. Absolutely. How clever and practical they were. I always just, it's just amazing. Absolutely amazing. So you touched on religion there. There, Obviously they need that religious knowledge. So what have you discovered in your work about the religious beliefs of these women and the practices that they took part in as well? Yeah. I mean, I think again, there's a lot of evidence. It's really hard to read. So we, we never know about people's inner spiritual lives, as Elizabeth I was very aware. Um, but we, there is a lot of evidence of women finding a voice and a strength through that religious practice. And obviously we tend to focus on those women who left a really clear spiritual testament, but there are lots of mini testaments. And, and I think uh, anyone who's read through a number of early modern women's wills is very aware of how incredibly touching, uh, that's, that's not the right word, much stronger word than that. You know, really uh, they're showing a clear faith and the importance of that faith. And they are articulating it both verbally and textually, which I think is there's a self-confidence there in their ability to do that. So there's a strength in this religious practice for them. Uh, for certain groups among the middling in certain towns, it's definitely a part of that performance of credit that if you are capable of being a part of a family that uh, administers, that runs, that makes a town work, that will be based in a religious, a clear religious calling to be uh, an authority figure, and you will have a very good command of your scriptural basis. And again, on that that kind of um, because domestic practice in early modern England always works in these these spheres. If you can offer that spiritual sustenance that we were talking about to your household, then your family will be able to offer it to a wider group in a town. So you have to show that you understand what is required from you as a as a Christian and you have to perform that and I don't mean that in a in a negative sense uh, you have to show others that you have that understanding and you have to promulgate it so there is certainly there are groups of very committed Protestants that want to move further 
spiritually in these towns uh, and there's, there's a lot known about this isn't there uh, about how how they become influential in running the towns so that, that the kind of women are very important I think in in those practices and in showing that a household has a clear uh, religious ideal that it's working towards and that's about their moral worth but it's also about their religious practices and then the whole range of some of the pew disputes that we were talking about earlier uh, and we see women turning up in in religious practice uh, around alms giving around providing for the poor so again you know this huge range really but I think obviously later in the 17th century you're getting many more of spiritual autobiographies being written but you can see the beginnings of that practice and and the central role it gives to women's lived experience in furthering the kingdom if you want you know in in seeing uh, a religious community taking shape uh, and funeral sermons again at, at the higher level there are talking about the, the really vital importance of women's religious understanding and of women's religious acts to sustaining whole communities so it is, you know, it's it's a way in which they're reaching prominence in a national print market, but also in their communities for being known and seen to be living out their faith uh, as a series of charitable acts along the lines recommended, you know, ticking off, yeah. <laughs> again, not in a negative sense, uh, all their spiritual acts of mercy uh, as, as they go about their daily business. So uh, it's certainly the evidence that we're seeing is that for a significant group of these women it, their religious beliefs and practices are absolutely vital they're vital to them but they're also vital to the household and to their sense of how the community works so earlier you were talking about obviously the difficulties with researching individual women in this period and and hence why you you've looked at households but did you come across any interesting information about any individual women that you might be able to to tell us about Oh, so many. Yes, yes, and wonderful. And, you know, as is always the case for uh, re researching below the level of the elite, we're just looking at these little snapshots and, and trying to piece together several tiny pieces of information about people. But nevertheless, you really get a flavour. And one of the other um, electronic outputs of, of the project is a status calculator, which is uh, a bit of well, it started off as a bit of fun in lockdown when we didn't uh, we didn't have access to archives for a very long period of time. But actually, it's increasingly become a way of us thinking through these different groups within the middling. So you can go onto the website and you can run either yourself imagined as a 16th, 17th century person through the calculator or a historical personage that you've been working on or reading about or finding out about to see how they come out. And it weighs their different cultural practices against one another. And at the end of it, you get, you, know, you are elite middling, let's say. But you also get some case study people. So um, I was just going to say a little bit about one of the people that you could come out of the status calculator as, you know, that you're you're similar to these people, because we wanted to make it particular, not just make it this generic sense of, of where people are in the middling, because that's not how the middling works. They're all different. And to give some sense of what those people's lives might have been like. So one of the people you could come out as if you were elite middling is Thomasine Harrison, 
a uh, very wealthy widow of George, who was an alderman in Bristol. And in her will, she gives £210, massive amount That's of money, huge amount. to the mayor and commonality of Bristol, uh, to be divided amongst cities, parishes for poor relief. And uh, in the indentures made after her death, uh, for each church, she has a charitable disposition, they say, about her. So again, picking up on this kind of persona, this, this civic persona uh, that women have, which Again, you know, we, we don't tend to think about. She is known by everybody for her charitable disposition and buried in the church in a tomb alongside her husband. So in a prominent position, uh, she lives comfortably, gives money to her friends in her will and, and to her family in addition to those charitable bequests. And then she gives 40 black frieze gowns and handkerchiefs so that 40 poor women can attend her funeral to commemorate that generosity. You know, that's a lot of poor women and a, an enormous amount of cloth. And again, you get that mixture between personal piety and show, civic show. And she's central to that civic world, in other words. So that's one of the women. So again, we would mainly be looking at her husband because he was an alderman, but we can tell that story about her and then look at them as a family unit. Uh, and then I'll just give you one other example, which is much nearer the bottom, I think. sort of. It's very hard to tell because there's only this one piece of evidence, but probably precarious middling. It's a really long case from the 1630s about Richard Fletcher, who's a, gov a glover, in Chester and he is a servant to an important man with civic roles so again you know he's middle of the middling but he's also got his own servants and in court he confesses to stealing all sorts of things from his employer including wood which he puts down his breeches don't know how that works uh, and leather and also wool. So he steals lots and lots of things. But what he does with the wool, which is the main thing he steals, is to deliver it to his wife, who's called Ellen. And she sells it all over the town to the wives of all the craftspeople she knows. So she has this huge network of people there, candle makers, et cetera, et cetera. And she sells this wool in little parcels so that it largely disappears. And she's keeping the family going and hopefully expanding their economic uh, enterprises. It doesn't go well because she ends up in court. But, you know, there again, you see this little vignette of how those connections that these women make and those networks have a significant impact on their family finances, but also uh, on the way in which, which in which Chester operates in this shady world of secondhand wool. Well, she sounds fascinating, doesn't she? I'd love to know more about her. So I know a lot of the people that listen to my podcast are interested in researching women themselves. So can you tell us anything about the sources perhaps that you used to reconstruct the lives of these ordinary women? Yeah, so a lot of it is based on probate documents. So that's the wills and the inventories of the objects uh, that people owned. And then we, what we try to do is to make links, to make the record linkage, so that where we've got a tiny example like that, we would then go and spend some time uh, looking for other types of documents in which these people might appear or their families might appear and try to put them together. And it's piecemeal, it's painstaking, but it's vital because otherwise all we can say is, well, we know nothing and that's no good. Good, not good enough we can do better than that and the other big type of evidence for us is court cases and again you know as you saw there we're looking at when it goes wrong when people have found out but that's where you start to glimpse I think otherwise invisible practices networks connections 
friendships. And then for women, we're also looking, we're reading against the grain of some of these documents. We're, if we're looking at church wardens accounts, let's say, you know, we're not looking at, uh, at the church wardens. We're looking to see who's paid to do things. Uh, and those are uh, relatively frequently women. Uh, we're also looking at the, where that kind of the travel from the will, where somebody like my first example of Thomasine is leaving money to the poor. Then we might pick that up in the church warden's accounts later to see how it's dispersed. So we can we can see the impact of their lives by putting these tiny pieces of evidence together. And then the other thing that I think it's really vital for us to get to grips with if we really want to understand women's lives is objects. So going to local provincial museums, going to you know, antiques collectors to see, you know, it's really easy in big national museums to find the objects of the elite, much harder to pin down the objects of the middling sort. And in the fullness of time, we're hoping to pull together an online exhibition where we can see some of these objects that, that women were using, buying, bequeathing together, and just to think about the kinds of practice that are represented there, to understand by looking in detail about how they handled them, what they used them for, how long it might have taken, how difficult it was, what, how much these things cost, and just to really understand domestic practice in particular through understanding these objects which on which it depended. So there's a few really good groups of evidence, I think, that we can put together there. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I, I totally agree with you about the objects. I think we can make such a, a powerful emotional connection with objects and, and relate to people that, as you say, would otherwise be invisible if we don't look for these, these little pieces of evidence. So I am sure that everyone listening is, you know, eager to find out more about the project and, and the work you do. So where can they go to find out more? The best place to go, I think, is middlingculture, all one word, dot com, um, which is the project website, and they can try out the status calculator. And soon there will be um, the opportunity to, to link to the virtual room uh, and to the exhibition from there. And that also will connect out to our key project partners, the Weald and Downland Museum and the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. But also we have other project partners in the Folger and the Portable Antiquities Scheme, which is really vital for understanding the smaller items that, that were owned by these groups and also their geographical dispersal. And then be in touch. Do be in touch with us. Tell us, tell us about uh, things that you found. Tell us about your experience of using the status calculator. It's a tool. It's meant as a bit of fun, but it's actually thought provoking, you know, well, how did you think differently? And just tell us, you know, how you found these things and what else you want to know. Um, we're really keen to start conversations with people. Well, that sounds wonderful. And I will put links to all of those in the show notes. So that's nice and easy for everyone to find those. And I can't wait to hear more about the virtual room. So you'll have to update us, Catherine, when you've got that ready to go. And thank you so much for taking part in all things 16th century women. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thank you very much. It's been great fun. Really interesting. Thank you. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners. So if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family. And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group 
on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the Most Happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Music